0: Hey folks, and welcome back to The Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motz, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are wrapping up our series on New Covenants with James Jordan, and here he's going to be discussing the book of Acts and Paul we are in houston texas this weekend for a regional course on how to read the bible with peter Lighthart. there are over 100 of you registered and we look forward to seeing many of you out there coming up we have our theopolis workshop on the book of judges starting tomorrow august 28th with james b john and james jordan take a look at the link in the show notes for more information about that course coming up we're going to be in wichita kansas on september 17th and 18th for a regional course on what is creation and then in the fall we have a couple of more online courses One on baptism with Alistair Roberts, and the other on Shakespeare's Hamlet with Doug Jones. You can find all the information for those courses in the show notes. With that, we want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan discussing the New Covenant.
1: always making things new. His Spirit is always making things new. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without shape, and it was empty, and it was dark. Three things. Darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was already moving. We don't find that God sends the Spirit into the creation. When God creates, the Spirit is in the creation, at the moment of creation. And He's always there traveling with the world. He's close to us. He can be grieved. He never leaves the world. The second person of the Trinity comes into the world and goes back out of the world. And the Father doesn't come into the world. The creation is going to be brought to the Father at the end. Now, These aren't absolute things because all of God does all that God does in the opera extra of God. But in a very real sense, the Spirit is the one who's always traveling in time. And the Spirit makes things new every day, makes new covenants, new arrangements, new creations. Each day in Genesis uh, 1, and then he enters into human beings, and now through human beings he does that. Okay, man now uh, goes into times of sleep and wakes up again. Man uh, will fall asleep at the end and wake up again in a new universe. All of these things are part of how God's Spirit does things. It's the rhythm and the movement of the Spirit of God. Uh, the covenants in the Bible, we can say, you know, I read online, People who should know better, saying, well, these guys, they just believe in one covenant. They're not bi-covenantalists. They're mono-covenantalists. Well, is there one covenant or two covenants? Yes. Okay? You know, there's God. And in, there's, in history, there was a design for two. And there's also seven of them. Let's see, there's Adam, Noah, patriarchs, Sinai, Kingdom, remnant, and restoration. And then there's a new one, the eighth. All right? And within each one of those, there's two. Because there's always a groom form and a bride form. First, there's Adam, and then he's cut in half and resurrected, and then he has Eve. Israel comes out of Egypt. There's a census of all the men. Then we have death and resurrection in the wilderness. And the second census includes the women. And the Ten Commandments elevates the woman on the other side. There's Elijah all by himself, and Elijah dies. How do we know that Elijah dies? He did die. He didn't just float up into heaven without dying. I can prove it to you. Because Elisha shaved his head. Okay, these men were Nazarites. In the previous chapter it says Elijah was a lord of hair, a bale of hair. He's a Nazarite. Elisha is a Nazirite. If you're in the Nazirite vow, it says if somebody dies next to you, you shave your head and start over again. And that's... Oh, Elisha did not have male pattern baldness. <laughs> he was a Nazirite who just shaved his head, and that's why... The deacons of the Bethel Shrine, the young men, the Naarim, who are deacons of the the Bethel Shrine, the seminary students at the liberal seminary in Bethel, they come out and ridicule him because his master has been taken from off his head. That's literally what it says throughout that chapter, right? Your master will be taken off your head today. Okay, and so he shaves his hair, and now they, they laugh at him. And so the bears come and get him. Hornets got them in the first conquest and bears get you. The land does not want these people in it. The land is, you know, hornets and bears, they're on God's side. They take a bite out of crime. They're, they're God's friends. They they don't like us, it's because we're bad. Okay. Um, how did I get onto that? Yes, and then you see, Elijah, uh, Peter was pointing out last year, Elijah does everything alone. As soon as you get to Elisha, community, bride. Everything Elisha does is in community. Okay, bride form of the covenant. We come back from exile, Cyrus, we build the temple. We get to Darius, Artaxerxes, we build the city. Okay, the bride city. And in between, there's this time when we're not allowed to build anything. So we come back from exile, we get the temple built, then there's death, we can't do anything. Then, we can build a city. Of course, the New Testament's going to have the same structure. Jesus' resurrection. Then the church is formed and that first fruit church undergoes death and res- resurrection in the great tribulation. And then the bride has made herself ready and everything is, is everything has been done. And 80, 70 forward, we there. So there's these these covenants They come in stages, in progression. So how many of them are there? Seven? 25? Come on, give me a break. Uh, depends on what you're talking about. And then we talked about the beginnings of the New Covenant and how, in a way, the New Covenant has something to do with universalizing what was there in Israel. Now make disciples of all the nations. Uh, and it really gets a, a start with Elijah who actually goes out and pours oil on a Gentile to make him a king. And God starts to claim this world. And then God sets up what the New Testament calls the Oikumene or oikumene. This land around the land, a new land. And Israel is given a wonderful new privilege of being a nation of prophets scattered out, spread out uh, within this place to leaven it and bring it to the point where it's ready to receive its king, Jesus, who comes as king of the Jews in, uh, in Matthew and Mark and then more by implication, king of the Oikamine a new Cyrus uh, in Luke to a greater extent. That's the stress. And then we talked about shifting from land to city, that the city motif, uh, the notion of the city, and the reality of a city technological world um, is of the essence of the new covenant. No longer under uh, the uh, cycles of the world, but now much more over it. And now the last thing that I want to do in in trying to tie in with what others are doing is look at the book of Acts. And that's on the 8th page in your notes that I guess you picked up yesterday. And so I just want to talk about what's going on in the book of Acts. And as I see it, you know, this is all we do here at this conference is present (laughs) where we've gotten to and discuss it with each other. So here we are. This is where I've gotten to in this. And Acts gives us two stories. Okay? The first story is about the twelve apostles who are apostles to the land. They and their assistants go over the land. And the second story is about Paul, the apostle who goes into the oikumene, across water, into this land around the land. And uh, on page 8, I've just got some stuff here on Luke and Acts. I won't go over it. Uh, It just shows the parallels between the two. Uh, This is from another lecture I gave, but I think that it's, uh, it, it is useful to, to look at some of these things because um, they show us something of what's going on in Acts and how Luke has given us uh, a John the Baptist part of Luke and then a Jesus part of Luke, in a sense. Both books start off with angelic visitations. Uh, in Luke 1, angels come. In Acts chapter 1, angels Angels appear and say, why are you guys looking up into heaven? This Jesus is going to come back. Angelic visitations begin both books. Right away, in Luke 3, about the first thing we read is that John the Baptist has been taken off the scene and put into prison by Herod. And uh, that corresponds with the fact that Judas is off the scene and Judas has to be replaced. Now one of the things that always comes up is, well... The apostles, you know, they cast lots. They gambled. There, That's bad. And uh, they were not supposed to replace Judas because God was going to replace him with Paul. No, that's not true. I'm going to show you why that's not true. In the first place, casting lots. This is before the Holy Spirit is given. In the Old Testament, you could cast lots using Urim and Thummim. And these guys are the new priests. They have access to Urim and Thummim, and they cast lots. For the last time, in a sense. Because once the Holy Spirit comes in power, we won't need to do that anymore. And uh, they do need a twelfth disciple because this will be a land disciple. Okay, We'll look at that in a few minutes. The next thing in Luke is the baptism of Jesus and the next thing in Acts is Acts chapter 2, the baptism of the church. Jesus proclaims to Satan in his temptations. Peter goes straight to Jerusalem. Now you see that parallel makes it interesting. to the extent that these books are parallel, then some of the parallels become informative. (laughs) Jesus goes to Satan and Satan uh, tries to tempt him and Jesus rebukes him. What does Paul do? He goes to Jerusalem. So now we have a kind of a hint of what Jerusalem is, what it has become, what it's parallel to. The next thing in uh, Luke is a reference to Jesus healing a paralytic in Capernaum. In Luke 4, they say, you will say to me, do what you did in Capernaum. Well, we have to go back to Mark to see that, but everybody's already read Mark. People have been reading Matthew and Mark for 20 years. Well, Matthew for 10, Matthew for 20 years and Mark for 10 years. And so Luke knows everybody's read those books. And so he can allude to this. And the first miracle that's mentioned in Luke is healing a foot, okay, a paralytic. And uh, Nazareth wants to see the same thing. And the first thing Peter does is heal a paralytic in Acts chapter 3. Now, the reason for that is that Luke and Acts are about traveling and going places. Okay. You anoint a priest, or if you're an Israelite and you've got leprosy and you've got to be restored, blood and oil are put on your ear, your thumb, and your foot. Matthew's the ear gospel, Mark is the hand gospel. And Luke is the foot gospel, and so is Acts. It's about traveling, and we'll see that in a little bit more in a minute. Well, number six here, Jesus is rejected by his hometown in Luke 4. They try to kill him. He's the son of Joseph. That is, that is to say, he is the new and greater Joseph. That's a double entendre there son of Joseph, the greater Joseph. And so he says, yeah, and just like Joseph went to the Egyptians and they listened, but his brothers tried to kill him, so Elijah went to the Gentiles, even though there were lots of widows in Israel. And then they take him out and they're going to throw him down, just like Joseph was thrown down into the pit. But Jesus escapes. Joseph, who is going to be their king at that stage in history, uh, and Jesus the same. Parallels. And of course, Peter and John are beaten by the Jerusalem leaders. They treat him, they treat them the same way Jesus was treated. Then number seven, Jesus selects twelve, and the apostles select seven. Why didn't Jesus select, you know, fifteen? Why didn't the apostles say, oh, we need eleven guys to help us out? You know, when you start asking questions like that, evangelical and reform people get real nervous. Are you saying that there's a numerical theology in the Bible? Well, there is, yeah. These people thought in numbers. And if we don't, then we're the ones who are going to have to change. Because <laughs> the Bible does. Jesus said, I think I'll select 12, not 11, not 14, 12. The apostles said, we need 7 guys. It makes you wonder if well, I don't know. I'm not going to say this. Rich would say, maybe in our churches we should have 12 elders and 7 deacons. But I won't say that. You can discuss that. I'm only kidding now. But you, you, you wonder if, if, uh, if we shouldn't think more realistically about numbers and less nominalistically about it. I don't know. Somebody else will have to deal with that. Well, number eight, Jesus ministers and the apostles minister in the next sections that happen. Jesus heals a blind man. Saul's blindness is healed. Scales fall off of his eyes. The serpent has blinded him. Jesus defeats demons. Scales fall off of Saul's eyes. Well, I just said that. Jesus says, young man, arise. Little girl, arise. Peter says, Dorcas, Tabitha, arise. All this parallel language in the way these books are written. Number nine, Herod kills John. Jesus fully replaces John at that point. And that parallel to that, Herod kills James, and we come to Peter's death and resurrection section in the book. I want to go there just for a second. Some of you may never have looked at this before or heard it. But Herod, in chapter 12 of Acts, Herod, who is a relatively new king and wants to curry favor with the Jews, he decides that he will... uh, He'll take on these heretical sect of Christians and lay hands on some of them and he takes James, the brother of John, and he puts him to death. And I think, you know, if you read uh, if you read the Epistle of James, you can see why. <laughs> How are you rich? Well, yeah. Let's get rid of this guy. I'm assuming that James, the son of Zebedee, is the author of James, and it's just the kind of thing that Herod wouldn't want to hear read to him. But... Whatever the case, he puts him to death. He puts Peter in prison, and it's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's when Jesus was arrested and put in prison. And Now Peter is in prison, uh, and Peter is sleeping between two soldiers, just like they were soldiers guarding Jesus' body. And an angel of the Lord appears and wakes up Peter. His chains fall off. (coughs) Um, The soldiers uh, are blinded or dazzled. Uh, the door opens and he goes out and then he comes to the house where they are. He's met by a young girl, a woman, a Mary, only her name is Rhoda, and she runs back and tells the men that Peter's there and they won't believe her. Now this is exactly the same story we've just read You know about the resurrection of Jesus. Woman goes back, the apostles don't believe her, Peter continues knocking, they let him in, And then in verse 17, (laughs) motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of the prison. And he said, report these things to James. Now we have another James. We have death and resurrection of James. I don't know what, you know, We just think about that. One James dies, another James, or Jacob. And the brethren, he says, report these things. And it says he departed and went to another place. Just like Jesus appearing in the upper room and then departing. Why why did Peter do that? Why does Luke tell us that? Why does the Holy Spirit tell us that? Well, it's to establish these parallels. You see, something has happened. This is an event, a redemptive historical biggie in, in the history of the world. Something has happened. The Gospel has gone to the Judean era, and now there's another death and resurrection, out of which comes Paul now going to the Oikumenei. Because that's what happens. Okay? Then we read about the death of Herod. Herod dies because like, a, like a anticipating or as a first manifestation of the man of sin who takes his seat, um, that's what he does claiming to be God. And he is struck down. And then immediately, verse 25, Barnabas and Paul returned from Jerusalem, taking along with him John, who was called Mark, and they were at Antioch. Now, we've moved from Jerusalem to Antioch. We have a new center. The center is no longer going to be Jerusalem. It's going to be Antioch. Ignore the chapter break. Rule number one, ignore chapter breaks. Whenever you read a chapter of the Bible, always read the verse before it. And always go one verse past the end of the chapter to make sure you're not missing something important. And we are here. Paul and Barnabas left Jerusalem, and they were at Antioch. And the church was there. Prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, who'd been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Five guys. Five. Numerical theology. What is five? It's a hand. It's yeah. What did you say? Yes, a hand. It's power, strength. All over the place in the Old Testament. Five Israel came out of Egypt. Five in a rank. Your Bible says in martial array. In Hebrew, five in a rank. Two squads of five. No, a squad is ten men. You know, your sergeant is over the whole ten, and the corporal is over five of them. Okay. Five guys, they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, and the Holy Spirit said, set apart Barnabas and Saul, and they sent them out, and they go on their journey. See, that's immediately what happens after this death and resurrection of Peter. So that is an important transition. And what what we kind of see there is Jesus does his ministry in Judea, Samaria, and Galilee. This is the holy land that was set up after the exile. Jesus' death and resurrection takes the twelve, and they go to all the land that was promised to Abraham, but just there. And we come to this kind of death and resurrection. James, Peter, another James, there's this double notion here. One Jacob dies, another Jacob takes his place. Peter has his experience, and then we go to the Oikumene. We're going to come up to the Great Tribulation And the the first resurrection, which I take to be an Ezekiel-type motif in in Revelation 20, after the trip, and that's going to send it out to the whole world. That seems to be the progress here. If that's not right, show me, because that's the way it looks to me. That, And that continues, you see. I mean, for 2,000 years we've been seeing this go on. The, the tribulation of the church in furious times in history leads to and is followed by expansions. Okay? Because that's the pattern. You know, the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. And I think we see God completing and fulfilling the Old Testament history here, but He's doing it by this method. It's not just... The day of Pentecost happens and everything just kind of dribbles out from there. No, there are certain things that are happening stage by stage as God recapitulates and carries up everything that He has set out before and then moves beyond that boundary to the Chinese and to the Incas and Aztecs and Ebos uh, and everybody else in the world. Well, then I've got down here is number 10. Paul's ministry parallels Peter's and both parallel Jesus' ministry. Okay. I've just got a list of things here that I cut out of another book. And you can look at it on your own. Now, Jesus moves to Jerusalem. That's the Luke and travel narrative. That's the big part of Luke that's interesting and not found in Matthew and Mark. This foot part. And that's Paul's final trip to Jerusalem. You know, Paul's got to go to Jerusalem too. I've got to go there. He's been taking Nazarite vows. and Nazarite vow is a holy war vow. And both his second and third missionary journeys are holy war events. So he wants to get and cut his hair off and put it on the fire and dedicate his head to God. You know that the Nazarite does not dedicate his hair. He dedicates his head. And when he cuts off his hair, it means he's cutting off his head. John the Baptist, who was a Nazarite, that's why his head is cut off. Because that's what cutting off the hair means. That's why in the book of Revelation it says that the the warriors are those who were beheaded. That means that they were Nazarites. They were those who offered their head, their whole persons to God. And that's what this symbolizes. I mean, you don't really want to chop your head off at the end of your Nazarite vow, so you take your glory off. But that's the same thing. Okay, That's how these things link up. And in the book of Revelation when it talks about all of those who...
0: Are resurrected
1: or those who were beheaded. It means those who had served as virgins, that is, as Nazarites, as dedicated holy warriors. It's all symbolic language. It doesn't mean that they weren't married. It means that they were single-minded in their evangelistic, uh, in their service of God. So Paul wants to go to Jerusalem too. And then number 12, we have Jesus and Paul's controversial final ministry and confrontations in Jerusalem. We have Jesus' arrest in the holy place, which is the olive. The olive is the holy... Uh, I need to tell some of you this too. The temple is made of three kinds of wood. Cypress wood on the floor, cedar wood for the house itself, and olive wood in the Holy of Holies. Olive doors lead into the Holy of Holies. And the cherubim inside the Holy of Holies are big wooden olive things. When Paul says we're put into the olive tree, he means we're put into the Holy of Holies, into the throne room tree, okay? Olive oil is the oil that's sprinkled all over everything to make it holy. And the Mount of Olives functions this way in the Gospels. Zechariah says that the Mount of Olives is like those two olive doors, and it divides and opens up. Okay, But just as in Zechariah the two bronze pillars become bronze mountains, so the olive wood doors into the Holy of Holies become the Mount of Olives which opens up. Okay, and when Jesus is on the Mount of Olives, that's the equivalent of being in the Holy of Holies. That's where he is. Okay, now all these important things happen on the Mount of Olives. It's not just because it happened to be there. You know, when Jesus prays in the Garden of Olives and he is squeezed and the blood comes out of him, that's because, as Augustine says, he's the true olive. Okay, And he's the one who's in the olive press. And his blood and the oil that comes from him is what justifies and glorifies us. Blood and oil. Okay, So he's arrested in the olive place and he's put on trial by the priests, the Herods, and the Romans. Okay, The garden enemy, the priests, the brother-brother enemy, the Herods, and the Gentile enemy, the Romans. Right out of Genesis 3, 4, and 6. And everywhere else. Paul is arrested in the temple, which is the olive place. And he's put on trial by the same three courts. And then in 14, Jesus' ascension through death and resurrection to the throne. Paul's arrival at Rome after death and resurrection. The ship goes down. Paul saves him. Then a snake bites him. But he's not killed. He gathers wood on the Sabbath. God doesn't kill him. A snake tries to kill him. But it doesn't work. Okay? It's the 14th day when he does this. That's all elusive. Okay, The sign of Jonah. The ship goes down, but Paul saves all the guys on the ship, just like Jonah saved all those guys on his ship. And they threw away their idols and worshipped the Lord. So there's all kinds of stuff going on here. It's one more sign of Jonah. Just as Jesus' death and resurrection is a sign of Jonah, you have obvious sign of Jonah stuff at the end of Acts. And Paul arrives in Rome. So these are parallels. We want to see that in the book of Acts. Now Acts is in two parts. In the first part of Acts, which is about the conquest of the land, uses Joshua as its template. Of course, Joshua means Jesus. It means Yahweh puts into a big, wide open place. Okay? Joshua. It's the same name as Elisha. Eli Shah. Eli, my God, puts into a big wide open place. We've got lots of guys with the same name, you see. We've got Yahshua. Yah saves. Eli Shah. My God saves. First there's Elijah. My God is Yah. Same as Elihu, the Jewish priest in the book of Job. My God is Yah. My God is Yahu, Yahweh. Elijah. And then after him comes Joshua, Elisha. Same the same name. Elisha, my God saves. Yah, Yahweh saves. Then we have another one, Joshua or Joshua the high priest, in the book of Zechariah. And here we have it again. Okay, Joshua. So Jesus comes, and if he's like Moses, somehow, Joshua, the Holy Spirit, this is what he does as Joshua, as Elisha. We have a new conquest. Acts chapter 1 corresponds to Joshua 1 and 2 his preparation for conquest. That's all I can say about that. But in Acts chapter 2, Joshua 3 and 4, the parallel is crossing the river and baptism. We cross the river into the new world, into what the New Testament calls, maybe I should turn the tape off here, but regeneration. <laughs> Ah, uh, the washing of regeneration, the washing that puts you into the new world. Just like the flood took people out of the old world and put them in a new world, crossing the Red Sea. Not all those Hebrews wanted to go through the Red Sea or Sea of Reeds. Somebody was saying Sea of Reeds. Oh, liberals come to this conference and say Sea of Reeds. I, I just, I don't know what's going on. Well, <laughs> whatever it was, however you translate it, and that was just, don't, don't take me seriously. But you cross over. You see, lots of those... You know, if you made an accurate movie about the Ten Commandments, you'd have to show the large majority of Hebrews worshiping those Egyptian gods. Clean-shaven. And, of course, Aaron and the Levites, being the scribal caste, well known to the Pharaoh, when Aaron comes out to visit Moses, he would have to be clean-shaven, looking like an Egyptian. You know, he can go instantly in to see Pharaoh... These are guys who were well fed. They had flesh pots and they had cucumbers, melons, garlic, onion, leeks. Man, hey, they cut those things up in the, you know, with the sheep and roast beef and everything else that they were eating. Not everybody was making bricks without straw. And not everybody put blood on their door. But Pharaoh drove them all out. Okay, They were all forced to leave. They were baptized whether they wanted to or not, Charlemagne style. <laughs> well, I'm passing on. Uh, we have the equivalent of that on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. And then in Acts 2, the next thing we have in Joshua is the destruction of Jericho and The next thing we have in Acts is the initial proclamation Jesus is David. Not that Jesus is Cyrus, but Jesus is David. How long did David reign? How long did Solomon reign? How long did Saul reign? How long did Asa reign? 41 years. How long do you think those apostles thought it would be before the destruction of Jerusalem? I think they knew exactly how long it was going to be. They didn't know the day or the hour, but I think they had a real good idea of how long it would be because they knew the Old Testament. Okay? We have a destructive conquest of Jericho in Joshua. We have a salvific conquest of Jericho, Jerusalem, in Acts. And you know, that parallels something else. How many people died at the golden calf? 3,000. Okay. How many people are baptized in Acts 2? 3,000. Now, what does baptism do? It kills you and makes you alive. And one of the symbols of evangelism in the book of Revelation is warfare and killing. You've got got to understand that. You know, everybody has to die. You're going to die whether you like it or not. And in, in the book of Revelation, these battles that are there, those are the same battles that Paul is dealing with. They're the same battles that are described in the book of Acts and in the epistles. And this killing that takes place. Let me show you something. I know some of you already know this, but not everybody has been shown this. In Revelation, Jesus comes to heaven, he opens the book... And so that's the book that holds back the new, the new Covenant. And once he's broken all seven seals and the book is open and the New Covenant comes, in chapter 8, he broke the seventh seal and there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. So all the singing stops. The book of Revelation lasts for one hour. There's 15 minutes of singing. There's a half an hour of preaching of the Word. And then there's 15 more minutes of singing. Okay? So now we're going to have the preaching. We're going to have the trumpets. And there's silence. Verse 2 says, I saw seven angels who stand before God in the trumpet. So they're going, to get, they're going to read the seven lessons from the Bible, and then we're going to have a sermon based on them. In verse 3, another angel. You always capitalize that. The other angel, the 25th angel, is the angel of the Lord. The other angel came and stands by the altar having a golden censer. Much incense was given to him that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints to the golden altar before the throne. Smoke of the incense, which is the prayers of the saints, went up before God out of the angel's hand. And the angel took the censer. This is Jesus. Jesus takes the censer. He fills it with fire from the altar and throws it to the land. What is that? That's Pentecost. Okay? But what does it say happens. Well, you know, it's hail and fire were thrown down to the earth. The earth is burned up. The second angel sounds, fire is thrown into the Gentile sea. It becomes blood. A third angel sounds, a great star burning like a torch, falls into the streams of rivers that flow out of the temple. That's what it means. And that's the casting down of Satan, wormwood and so forth. This fire, it's destructive, but this destructive language is just as much a symbol of conversion. And you have to know that in Revelation. This is baptismal language of, of uh, death and resurrection. I mean, one way or the other. You either get killed or you get converted. But the time of overlooking things is over with when we get to Pentecost. God overlooked the sins committed in ignorance in the before time, but not anymore. Now is the time of judgment. And, uh, oh, I've forgotten a few things. So, the next thing in Acts is that Ananias and Sapphira steal from God. They say that they have given all this stuff to God, but they hold some of it back, so they steal from God. So that's just like Achan. Okay? (laughs) Okay? Alright, and then in, Ch- and in Joshua 9 the next thing that happened is that these Gibeonites show up and they say, I don't know about you guys but we've been on a journey from Northern Ireland and it's taken us 40 years to get here and our clothes are all worn out and uh, we've just made an exodus and you say you guys have been wandering from Egypt for 40 years, well we're just like you and we have a covenant with you and of course it turns out that they're just Canaanites who want in well that's good and God honors that, and they become temple servants. You know, at the temple, you're going to have to have a lot of wood for all those sacrifices. And somebody's going to have to haul buckets of water up for all the washings. Because you've got to wash the blood off your hands and the dirt off your feet, which is equivalent to trespass offerings and I mean, trespasses and sins. And the priests have to do this. So these guys, they become the special servants of God. God's special servants to bring the wood and the water. For the worship. And later on when the ark returns from Philistia it's these Gibeonites who take care of it and care for it. So it's really a wonderful thing. And what's parallel to that in Acts 6 is these Greek Jews who need to be provided for. They say, you know, we've come on this long journey from out in the Oikamine and we don't know anybody here in Jerusalem and our widows aren't being taken care of. And the apostles say, oh, that's a shame. You know, we should treat you just the same way we treat ourselves. Then in, chapter Joshua, in chapter J- Joshua chapter 10, all the other Canaanites hear about what these Gibeonite guys have done, and they say, we better deal with them first. So they attack the Gibeonites, and the, and the, and the uh, Israelites have to defend them. Acts chapter 7, Stephen, one of those Gibeonites, he's the one who's attacked and killed. Well... The next thing in Joshua chapter 10 is that Joshua conquers all over in the south. And the next thing in Acts is that Philip goes south to the Ethiopian. And the next thing in Joshua is that Joshua conquers all of the north. And the next thing in Acts is that Peter goes up north to Caesarea. You see, this is very carefully done. Okay. The next thing in Joshua is that the land is all divided up among the twelve tribes. Now let me remind you that Jesus said that in the regeneration that the twelve apostles would rule the twelve tribes. I think that's exactly what's happening here. You know, See, our dispensational brothers would like... You know, they would say, well, if the twelve apostles are going to rule the twelve tribes, there must be a restoration of physical Israel in the millennium of some sort where the twelve apostles will rule the tribes. Uh, but you know what? Ruling is by overcoming. Ruling is by witnessing. In the book of Revelation, those who overcome are those who are martyred. That's how you rule in this new age. Jesus rules by dying. He rules from the tree. What does Venantius Fortunatus say in the hymn? Fulfilled is all that David told in true prophetic song of old, how God the nation's king should be, for God is reigning from the tree. And we see Jesus reign from the tree as he says, Son, behold your mother, mother, behold your son. He is disposing of his kingdom, even though he's on the cross. Now, that's the beginning of his reign. But that's how the disciples rule. And there have to be 12 of them. So we have to replace um, Judas with Matthias. And I think that this part of Acts shows us the disciples ruling in the regeneration, which means the new age. Okay? In the new age. And if you're baptized, you're put into the new age. For better or worse. Okay? But you're in the new age. Now in Acts chapter 1, listen to this, Acts chapter 1, Jesus presented himself alive to the apostles after his suffering by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. For 40 days Jesus taught these apostles about the kingdom of God. Now we know the apostles were the stupidest people who ever lived, right? They were illiterate peasants and fishermen. Guys from the very bottom of society. Isn't that right? Isn't that what they teach you? For one was a great big six foot two got blunderbuss guy named Peter. But Every time he opened his mouth, he put his foot in it. Oh, Jesus. That's the picture you get. Who dreams this stuff up? You know? No, these were all upper middle class guys from wealthy fishing concerns who were able to leave their nets and follow Jesus around for months at a time because all the other guys were still working at the Zebedee fish factory and other places. You know, they were, these were upper class. They were educated. They could read and write. They were synagogue trained. They were not officially trained they hadn't been they didn't have the phds so the pharisees looked down at him i read a re, i read a report the other day from a certain denomination that began by saying well all these guys do is self publish and put stuff out on the internet and their works are not vetted like ours are our works are vetted by the presbyterian reform publishing house and there are magazines, but these guys, this riffraff, they just publish online and self-publishing vanity presses. I think we've read that story before in the book of the Acts when they say these guys aren't educated. Well, I'd rather be out with David and Ziklag like Bivouac than be hanging around Saul's court, wouldn't you? Alright, it says here he taught these well-educated men for 40 days about the kingdom of God and I remember that I think after 40 days they know what the kingdom of God is don't you? And gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which, he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they came together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom of Israel? God, what morons! They've been taught about the kingdom for 40 days, and they still think the kingdom's going to be restored to Israel. Or not. Maybe they know exactly what they're asking about. Maybe the kingdom is going to be restored to Israel. Maybe that's what Acts chapters 1-12 to is all about. Maybe that's why Peter says that Jesus is David in chapter 2. Maybe Jesus becomes king of Israel before he becomes king of the Oikamene, And maybe he becomes king of Israel and emperor of the Oikamene, before he fully becomes king of the entire surface of the earth. Maybe there's a progression here. And maybe the 40 years from A.D. 30 to A.D. 70 is Jesus' Davidic rule over Israel. Don't you think that makes more sense? That they knew what they were asking about. I think so. Because I think so, and this is my conference. That's what we think. Okay? <laughs> so they say, "Are you are you going to start? Are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel now? Are you going to become David now?" And he said to them, "It's not for you to know the times and the epochs which the Father has fixed for His own authority. So you guys are ne- you, you guys aren't supposed to know that. I don't think that's the answer." Look, look at the whole statement. It's not for you to know that all the time, it's not for you to know the times of the epochs which the Father has fixed by His authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and even to the uttermost parts of the uh-oh, land or earth. All right? See, I think he answers the question, yes the first half of the answer is there are lots of things the Father has fixed. But yes, yes, this is the time. You guys wait in Jerusalem. The Spirit's going to come. This is the time when I'm restoring the kingdom to Jerusalem. Now, I think I originally was arguing that this says Judea, Samaria, and to the remotest part of the land because it's addressed to the Jewish disciples, and they go in the land, and Paul is the one who goes in the oikameen. But I have been convinced that I can't be real dogmatic about that, so now I think it's a double entendre. He doesn't say Judea, Samaria, and Galilee. And the uttermost parts of the land is Galilee. In the Old Testament, Harasheth of the Gentiles, or Galilee of the Gentiles, that's the remotest part of the land. And if we translate it, you Jewish guys will take the kingdom of Israel with me as David to Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and Galilee, remotest part of the land. That makes perfect sense. However, this is also almost a quotation from places in the Old Testament where the, the full reach of the earth is implied. So I'm willing to take it as a double entendre. But I do think there's an implication that these guys go to the land. All right? So then it becomes necessary for them to have a twelfth guy. And notice in chapter 1 verses 21 to 22, they say, it's therefore necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out, beginning with the baptism of John, until the day he was taken up from us, one of those should become a witness with us of the resurrection. And then Matthias is selected. Well, why? Because these guys who were going to go to the land, to Israel, have to have been people who were with Jesus when he was in the land. Okay? Now, I've got down here, and I think this is true, I think there is no evidence that Peter or any of these 12 guys ever left the old creation land area. There's all kinds of stories about Thomas going to India and all the rest, but there's stories. And there's stories about Peter going to Rome, but they're just stories. Peter writes from Babylon, and Babylon is Jerusalem. I'll prove that to you. It's right in Zechariah 5. Okay? Peter. I don't think Peter ever left this area. I think that these guys were called to stay and minister to the old creation area. But Acts 2 does anticipate the whole, because we find that there are Jews from all over the place. In verse 9, uh, Parthians and Medes and Elamites... Well, those guys are no longer part of the oikumeni. They're outside the boundary. Okay? Residents of Mesopotamia. The Romans don't govern that area. Okay? Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia. Romans do govern that area. So we have Judeans, oikumeners, and people from farther away. So I think that the extension from Jew to oikumen to the entire world is implied in Acts 2. And what is the specific gift they get is to speak in other tongues. And why do you need to speak in other tongues? Only if you're going to go somewhere else. You know, I don't really need to speak Russian except that I go to Russia. You don't learn another language. I mean, you can learn it for literature. But in the ancient world, you learned other languages because you're going to travel. And we have an army formed here. And uh, this is the new model army. Okay, for the new conquest. And we're going to conquer the world. So we need all the languages. In Acts 1-11, to all the traveling is over land. Peter winds up in Caesar, Ea. That's the last place. That's parallel to Rome. Paul winding up in Rome. Peter ministers to a Roman land officer, a centurion who's already a God-fearer, He's already a believer. He needs to transfer into the regeneration. You see, all these Old Testament believers, they were unregenerated. Because <laughs> they hadn't come into the regeneration. This is the way the Bible uses this language. Alright? Lydia, a seller of purple. A worshiper of God. Already a believer. If she died, she'd have gone to Abraham's bosom. Okay? She was saved. But she hadn't yet come into the regeneration, and the Lord opened her heart to receive the new news. And so she shifts over. That's who these people are. In fact, in the book of Acts, you are hard-pressed to find any convert from paganism. In the book of Acts, what the apostles are doing is they are harvesting out the old covenant believers, Jews and God-fearers. Now, maybe the Philippian jailer. But for the most part, if you look at the going to the church at Corinth, people say, well, the problems in the church at Corinth were caused by all these pagan converts in Corinth. I don't think there were probably, there might have been a few pagan converts in the Corinthian church, but there weren't many. If you read chapter 18 of Acts, it talks about all the God-fearers and Jews who came into that church. These are people who already knew the Old Testament. The leadership of the, of the church in Corinth were the people who had been leaders in the synagogue. We're told that. So all those problems in Corinth, they're not caused by pagan influences. They are caused by the fact that we're in a new creation and we don't know exactly how much of the old creation rules still apply. What does it mean for men and women? Are the laws of incest incest still in force? Now that we can have wine with Jesus, let's have too much. Every one of those problems is caused by the coming of a new creation and the leadership not knowing quite what that entails. They aren't caused by pagan influences. I promise you. The New Testament is really largely about harvesting, you know, this old covenant church, preparing. I know this sounds strange because we want to take it another way that they went out to all these pagans. But that's not what we see. I'm sure they did it. But that's not where the text makes its emphasis. All right. Now. C, 3C, Benjamin was born after Jacob came into the land from exile. And Saul, Paul is born after Jesus enters the land from the exile of the cross. That's parallel, and the parallel is pretty important, okay? Uh, Things have already happened. In fact, if you look at Genesis, you realize that Joseph was already in Egypt when Benjamin was born. And Joseph never knew that he had a brother, until he overheard the brothers talking about it when they came down to Egypt. Joseph, the chronology is crystal clear about this. There's absolutely no question about it. All you have to do is look at the numbers. Benjamin was born after Joseph went to Egypt. And Paul is born after Stephen has died, after certain things have already happened in the land. But the, we enter the land in, Joshua, in Acts chapter 2... And just as Benjamin is born in the land, so Paul is born in the land. And he's a descendant of Benjamin. So there's connections here, things to think about. The death of James and the resurrection of Peter in Acts 12 is a transition from the conquest of the land to the conquest of the Oikumene. Paul's ministry, oh, quickly now. The Antioch is the headquarters now. It's located in the Oikumene. Okay? We have the formation of Gentile God-fearing churches, not just Christian synagogue temples. Kind of is, it appears that the church undergoes somewhat of a shift in how it functions, how it is made up. I'm not sure what to do with that, but it's something I'd like to investigate a bit more. main thing I want to say is that we're in a prophetic context. Everybody knew that the world was coming to an end. Everybody knew it was going to happen in that generation. And I think they all knew it was going to happen 40 years after Pentecost. And Paul says, he quotes Habakkuk, And he quotes the prophets who are living in just exactly the same kind of time. The prophetic ministry is never if you shape up, judgment will go away. It's always judgment is coming. But if you are faithful, you will pass through death to resurrection. And that's what Habakkuk says. He says, God says, the Babylonians are coming and they're going to wipe you out. They're going to clean your clock. But the man who is just will come to resurrection on the other side of it. That is the meaning of the prophetic statements. The hope is not in averting judgment. The hope is in resurrection on the other side of judgment. The proud man, my soul has no use for him. King Zedekiah, he's going to be punished. Okay, But the just man will find life as a result of remaining faithful. Now that's what Paul says. And this is not just some abstract idea. It's in a context of a soon uh, wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes, and everything leading up to a big judgment on the world. And that's the context in which he says these things. That doesn't mean it's wrong to take that and say the just will live by faith and apply it the way we usually do. But it does mean we need some kind of a, a new outlook, maybe. On Paul and thinking about maybe some of the other aspects of what he's saying in his context because he is in the oikamine and the oikamine is a prophetic time, okay, and everything is about death and resurrection. Years ago, one of my professors said that every covenant uh, in the Bible is initiated. Or usually is initiated by some miracles and then those miracles kind of die down. But the miracles show us the nature of that covenant. And what is the nature of the remnant covenant? It starts off with a bunch of children being raised from... Nobody's ever raised from the dead in the Old Testament until we get to Elijah and Elisha. And what's that telling us? That's telling us Israel is going to undergo death and resurrection. Even the bones of Elisha get this guy to come to life again when they throw him into his tomb. Okay, that's a sign. In fact, the man who taught me these things is sitting right here. (laughs) I don't know if you remember that, but that was one of your points in class, that the miracles are temporary and they establish a new age. And uh, that's true in this time. You get resurrections at the beginning of the remnant because that's going to be the message of the prophets. Death is coming, but so is resurrection. And Paul is exactly that equivalent period of time in the New Testament age and I think that I think we need to look at Paul's epistles a little bit again and see them in something of that context the just man will come to resurrection through faith okay the world is coming to an end the just man will live if he is full of faith faithful and then we have um, Paul's death and resurrection I've already mentioned that <coughs> Number six, the end of the Oikumene period is given in Revelation, the death of the bride and the Great Tribulation, and her resurrection at AD 70 and her enthronement. John's Gospel, written after Revelation, provides the whole New World Gospel. Now how do I know that John's Gospel is written after Revelation? Well, I know it because, and you can go online to the John and Revelation Project and see this, but. John and Revelation are chiastically structured with each other. And they're parallel to each other. There are all kinds of parallels. And there's a lot of bride theology in Revelation. There is in John, too, with meeting the woman at the well who has already had five husbands and is living with a sixth. And the harlot in Revelation is involved with the beast who's had how many heads? Six heads? I mean, there's all kinds of stuff going on here. And either... John wrote first, and then Jesus looked down from heaven and said, you know, John, you've done a pretty good job of that gospel. I think I'll give my revelation using your gospel as a template. Or else, God gave his, Jesus gave his revelation to John, and John said, I will use the book of Revelation, which Jesus taught me, as a template for my gospel, which seems to me that's much more likely. You know what happens if you put John after Revelation? The last words in the Bible are this. There are many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that were written. It's interesting to think of the Bible ending with that, isn't it? At any rate, that concludes my remarks. Since there's no time for questions. Peter... Joshua, I, I don't think there is a section in Acts where there's a distribution. It doesn't appear to be. Uh, it appears to be that uh, that's just implied. And, and what I did was I said the dis- Jesus promised that the twelve apostles would rule over the twelve tribes is an implication that that's what these guys do in their ministry. Well, that would be out of order. Yeah, so no, I wasn't making that. I wasn't making that connection. If if you can make one, we're always in favor of connections around here. Yeah, it would be reversed. Yeah, I I, I guess if I was going to do something, I would say, you know, you've got the conquest up to chapter 12 or 11 in, in Acts, and then there's an implication that over the next... This is AD 44, so the next 26 years, the 12 disciples, 12 apostles, rule over the land, so to speak. But we're not given that apportionment. We just move into the next part of Acts.
0: Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast.